Welcome back to Arts About. The show about art that it's a work of art in itself. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Sally. Yes, you're listening to Arts About, which is brought to you by the generosity of the McClellan Sculpture Park and Gallery, and you're here in the Artable Peace Studios once again with the thermodynamic Mark Stewart. <coughs> Excuse me. And me, as always, tirelessly Sally Bailey. Sadly, John couldn't make it in this week, so we send him messages of derision, I think, generally speaking. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got to forge on without him this week. What are you going to talk to us about this week, Mark? Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about biophilia. What? Which I will explain later. Okay, that's good, because I have no <laughs> idea what that might be. You soon will. Great. And um, <clears throat> I'm going to uh, valley uh, Charles Blackman, who died. Absolutely, pa- passed yes. Passed away. Yes, he did. Um, it's been a bad week, actually, in the arts this week. We lost Aretha Franklin just a little before true. that as well, yes. Yes, but it's also the Leonard Bernstein's 100th birthday on August 25th. So, so yay a, that. Yay that. Uh, <laughs> We've been he- hearing a lot of Leonard Bernstein on the ABC, if anyone listens to them. Uh, and I'm going to talk about the bell minor as well. Oh, the bell minor, the bird. The bell. bird, yes. Ah, very good. Oh, that's good. Oh, phone crime. There's a phone crime in the office. Um, well, this week it's all about Fringe. Um, it's opening on the 13th of September and the big, bold and beautiful celebration of the independent arts takes over the city from the 13th to the 30th of September and the not-for-profit Open Access Festival celebrates cultural democracy with an almost endless display of artistic expression and inclusion that Melbourne audiences can delve into for two and a half weeks every year. Fringe Festival producer Danny Delahunty is going to be talking to soon about the imminent opening of this year's festival and we can't wait to hear some of the highlights with him. We're also going to be talking to one of this year's participants, Evan J. Lawson, who, along with cabaret star Danielle Ashek, are presenting a show that describes the life of Nico, defined by the songs they never played on radio. So I can't imagine anyone who hasn't had a moment of sadness this week to feel the world go on without Aretha Franklin. Her incredible contribution to musical life and civil rights has affected a lot of people. So vale to her. Here's a track that everybody will recognise from the fabulous Blues Brothers movie. This is Think. It is almost the dawning of the fringe once again in Melbourne, two and a half weeks in which anybody uh, fond of something a little different can come out to see artists trying out new material. Boundaries are crossed, experiments are played out, and Melburnians get to see the very cutting edge of the arts displayed in 170 venues across the city. Melbourne Fringe Festival is an open access, not-for-profit festival inviting and supporting independent artists in the development of new work. And this year, 3,000 artists are presenting more than 450 shows to nearly 400,000 Melburnians. And this year's festival asks, are you game? With CEO Simon Abrahams still at the helm, the program promises to be more accessible, more inclusive and even more out there. From the 13th to the 30th of September, the festival will transform Melbourne into a playground. Festival producer Danny Delahunty joins us this morning to discuss the very exciting September that he and the Fringe team have assembled for us. Good morning, Danny. Good morning. Thank you so much for taking the time out of what must be an extremely busy day for you. Yes, no, no, my my pleasure. And yeah, we're getting right into it now. Uh, Danny, before we go on, can you just describe to a few of our listeners who might not yet have been to or in or at the Fringe before what Fringe actually is? Yeah, so Fringe Festival is an, uh, an open access festival. It's an opportunity for anybody who wants to create work to make it and get it out there. So in, in your intro when you mentioned that there are over 450 shows, 
That is a huge amount of shows to be happening over a two-week period. Um, and Melbourne Fringe particularly, we, we like to focus on new, exciting work that is moving forward, creating a new voice in, in the arts. By virtue of being open access, I guess you give new performers a leg up and a chance to put work on and, um, and a support mechanism that might make the difference between trying out something or not. But you also provide a forum for experienced artists, don't you, to try out new ideas? Yeah, we definitely do. And um, that's one of the things that would really define the success or failure of a festival is having a good breadth of, of work in the festival itself. So ensuring that you have that, that space and that framework for people who have never done anything to really get out there and create their early work, but also to have some of the, the best and most exciting artists in, in Melbourne and around Australia and around the world indeed um, to present work with new ideas and new thoughts and new processes to really challenge their own form. Yeah, and now I know that um, Fringe... Uh as well as being open access, as you have said, you also curate a small section of it that goes on at the Fringe Hub, which is in your North Melbourne home. Is that right? That's right. So we, we do program um, one venue we call the Fringe Hub, um, and we have a huge amount of shows in there across the festival. Um, and that it is a slightly more curated um, season in a sense. It's still open access in that anybody can apply to be a part of it. Um, but we try to program it quite carefully to ensure that we are representing all different uh, styles of, of performance in there. Well, with 450 shows, it's really uh, an incredible thing to try and navigate. Can you, uh, can you give us a few highlights or tell us a, a, about a couple of particularly unusual shows that we might see this year? We um, do have a, a good mix of unusual. You know, when, when you start to look at a program and you, you start to discover these, these threads or these, you know, commonalities between different shows um, and you go, oh, that's really exciting. So, for example, we, um, we have this year three different shows that have, are experiencing their sequel after 10 years. So um, there's the Sammy J 50-year show, um, which is, I don't know if you've heard of that before, but he he started it 10 years ago, and he's going to perform one instalment of the show every five years for the next, I guess now it will be 35 years. (laughs) Regularly. I have actually heard it. I'm a big fan of Sammy J's. I think he's fabulous. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that sounds really good. Good on him, yeah. The third instalment, so the first one came exactly 10 years ago. Yep. Um, we also have a, a show called There um, from Elbow Room, which it premiered. Elbow Room is an amazing Melbourne-based uh, theatre ensemble, and their very first show was called There, and it was in the Lithuanian Club in the Loft Space at 9.30pm 10 years ago, and that was their very first show they ever did together, and it was looking forward into the future and what's to come. Now, 10 years later, they're performing that exact same show in the same space at the same time mm. and and kind of asking us the question, what were we looking forward to 10 years ago? And then in the second week of the festival, they're doing a new show called Here, which oh. is a retrospective looking backwards at that past 10 years and, and what we experienced compared to what we thought we were going to experience. And, and both of these shows are part of the Fringe Hub, is that right? Uh, no, the the first one is actually going to be at North Cape Town Hall, mm-hmm. 
um, in the main hall, so it's part of our friends at Darabin. Um, the second one, Elbow Room, uh, there and here, is part of the Fringe Hub. Now, I'm very interested in one of the projects that I've read about. It's called The Field Theory that you and Fed Square are hosting throughout the festival. Can you yes. tell me a little bit about that? That's called Icon, isn't it? It is. It's called Icon, and it is going to be huge. Mm. Um, we've launched it um, over the weekend. We had a great activation at Federation Square. Um, but, yeah, it's with our partners at Fed Square. It is going to be a celebration, a festival of an ordinary citizen. <laughs> so taking this idea that absolutely anybody could be celebrated for who they are and what makes up them. Um, we're currently looking for anyone who wants to submit to be part of ICON. They just have to go to our website. They put in some details and they upload a photo and suddenly they're in, in this lottery to be drawn as the ICON. And then the winner will have on the final day of the festival on the 30th of September at Fed Square, there'll be an entire festival thrown about that person. So, you know, you could arrive and, and there's a, a thousand cans of their deodorant, so everyone smells like them. There is a food truck serving up their favourite food and their favourite drinks. There's um, Their car is going to be on display or their vehicle will be on display <laughs> and every dint and scratch, there's going to be a tour of the stories of how they came about um, and it's going to be like a morning show type uh, set up on the stage where they'll be interviewed and so this person, this whoever it is, this icon will just be celebrated by the people of Melbourne. Wow, that's really feeding into the cult of celebrity, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. It's Gee. both a response to that cult of celebrity yes. and uh, an encouragement of it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> is only one person going to be chosen for this? Um... That's right, Mark. Just one person will be chosen. Um, and the field theory will then, when they choose this person, they're going to then spend 48 hours right up front and centre in their lives. They're going to be no further than 10 metres away from this person for a full 48-hour period. They're going to camp out in their living room or as close as they possibly can to them. Um, and they're just going to be just find out everything they can about them and then spend a week putting together this full festival okay. for them. All right. It so. sounds rather extraordinary. Um, now, it with, is. with so many different kinds of shows and so many artists, it's, uh, it's always a huge dilemma for people to actually determine what it is that they're going to go and see when they go to the fringe. What um, your website has, has been improving sort of exponentially over the last few years, and it's really easy to navigate and search with all the different breakdowns that you've done. I know that you can make a choice based on whether or not you're interested in feminist shows, LGBTQI, whether you're interested in Indigenous work. It's really fabulous. It really is, and, and we do put a lot of work. Thank you for saying. <laughs> um, it's, it's really improved over the past few years. Um, it's, it's the biggest thing, you know, me personally, that I find difficult with festivals is how to start to narrow down what it is you want to see. And, and so we do this by these curated guides, which uh, if you are interested in feminist work or you are interested in seeing work by uh, First Nations people or seeing, you know, giving voice to artists with disability, um, you can look up these individual guides. We also have an amazing new uh, <laughs> initiative this year that we call Fringer. Um, oh, yes, I is, like, I co yes, it looks like a card yeah. game. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a full app um, that we've developed and it's, you know, based off Tinder um, and you log in and you have your profile and you get suggested shows and you can swipe left or swipe right on each show 
and you can start to build up a curated list of shows that you would love to get a bit more close to. Fabulous. Um, and do you have the, the like you, in the past? There's been fringe furniture and there's been fringe film. Are there still those elements in, as part of fringe this year? Yeah, well, Fringe Furniture is 32 years old. Mm -hmm. um, it is it has run consecutively for almost every Fringe Festival, um, and it's not going away anytime soon. Um, so, yeah, Fringe Furniture is back this year. We have uh, run an amazing initiative called Fringe Furniture for Gender Equality mm -hmm. um, in response to a bit of research we did about our past Fringe Furnitures, which is reflected more broadly in the design sector. Um, of an underrepresentation of female identifying people. And so we did a huge campaign earlier in the year and we've um, actually upped our participation by over 30% from female identifying or non-binary designers. Um, so it's going to be, it's our biggest fringe furniture yet. We have over 160 pieces um, and it will be running for the entire duration of the festival at Abbotsford Convent in the Rosina Auditorium. Wow, yes, it's it's really such a huge organisation now and a huge, huge festival. Uh, it's it's quite exciting and I think we're Melbourneers are so lucky to have it going and it's just growing and growing, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Um, controlled growth, though, we, we're really lucky actually to um, not have experienced the kind of exponential growth that Adelaide and Perth experienced, which... Um, which was great in many ways, but it, it also means you can't give as much individual care to your artists with mm -hmm. the resources you have. Yes, well, look, look I have um, participated in Fringe a couple of times myself over the years, and one of the things that really is rather extraordinary about it is that care that you that you give individual artists, uh, enabling people to really uh, learn what that process is and to give that just that extra little bit of support and advice. It's very, very valid and very, uh, very uh, gratefully received, I'm sure. Yeah, and, and it's needed um, for our, you know, we really want to support the the broader arts industry. We want to make sure that um, emerging artists are getting the right kind of support and mentorship that they need to take the next step. But also in doing so, we ensure that the work that's being presented as part of the festival is of a much higher standard than it would have been without that guidance. Mm -hmm. And so it's care both for our artists and for our audience and ensuring that, that everything that we put out is the best that it can be. Yeah, well, Melbourne Fringe is a fantastic institution. We're very glad to have it. Uh, it's on for the uh, two and a half weeks in the middle of September and tickets, I think, are on sale already, aren't they, Danny? They are. We went on sale last week. So we had um, our launch on Wednesday night and we had our first show sell out by Thursday midday. Really? That is great to hear for yeah. some, yes. Well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it again this year. It's always uh, vivid and wonderful and uh, a very exciting place to be. Thank you very much for talking to us today, Danny Delahunty. Uh, thank you for having me. Great to talk to you. Bye. Bye. What's uh, the bet the person who wins the lottery is not a white middle-aged man? Yeah, well, let's hope he's not a white middle-aged man. Why? Now, <laughs> I've got a great all inclusive. Song. I've Sally, got yes, on. all inclusive. I've got a great sh white middle white middle-class men have had so many opportunities over the past. Let's not go there. <laughs> Here is the Kinks with Ape Man. White middle-class men.
Now, one of the things I just wanted to mention this week is I read about in the newspapers. There's an art show coming down to Tasmanian Gallery in Hobart. It's been in the Canberra Gallery, the NGA, and coming down there for a few months. It's the works of convict artist Thomas Bock, who was sentenced to transportation to Australia, uh, to Tasmania in 1824 when he became one of the most sought after artists in the colony and a collection of his portraits of the Aboriginal people has been in storage in England for 180 years. It went back there uh, after those times and has never been seen again in Australia and in fact it's actually virtually never been seen by anybody except for scholars. Scholars and probably the artist and the people who painted him are almost the only people that will have ever seen them which is rather uh, extraordinary because that means that they have been stored for that length of time in museum conditions. And from what I understand it, they are like new. Mm. So there's Truganini, there's a whole lot of uh, characters that will be recognisable by quite a few different people. But anyway, I think it's worth mentioning because I think that people should probably consider getting down there. It's going to be there, I think, until November in Hobart, and then I think it might even move to Hobart, so uh, to, I beg your pardon, to Launceston. So there's a little bit of time for people to plan and get down there and see them. And I'm sure that if you Google it or Google the uh, Tasmanian Art Gallery, you may get to see one or two of these images as incentive to go down there. Coming up next, we've got some messages from our sponsors. And after that, we've got an interview with another Fringe participant. The Forest Collective is an arts organisation focusing on contemporary classical music. Founded in 2009 by a group of students from the VCA, it has become one of Melbourne's leading youth arts companies. For this year's Fringe program, its artistic director, composer, conductor and musical director Evan J. Lawson has formed an alliance with one of Melbourne's most exciting new cabaret stars, Danielle Ashak, to present a show about Andy Warhol's muse, singer, songwriter, performer and model Nico. Reconceptualising traditional instruments with an avant-garde punk rock sound, Nico, songs they never played on the radio, will give us Nico as we might never have heard her. To tell us a little bit more, here's musical director and conductor Evan J. Lawson joining us this morning. Good morning, Evan. Welcome Hello. to Arts About. Hi. Uh, so, Nico, um, it's a project that Danielle and I have been working, sort of thinking about for actually years. Like, it's been about five years, I think, <laughs> since I sort of first... Oh, Really? Yeah, so I'd, I'd heard Nico's music, and I, everyone I speak to about Nico's music always sort of say, says that, like, it changes their life, and that was certainly true for me. I remember hearing it at a friend's house and just being like, what is this music? Mm. So it always had been rattling around, um, and then Danielle and I had have been friends for many years, and then when I sort of just thought, this would work fantastically well as a, as a staged... Um, version about her because her life is so sad and there's so much drama in her life and in the music and I put it to Danny and um, yeah we've just been sort of thinking about it and tinkering away on it for years and now we're finally doing it. Well, she was certainly an influencer in my life. I mean, who could forget? I, the first time I saw her was uh, trimming her fringe endlessly in Chelsea Girls, which was Andy yeah. Warhol's film. Yeah, and uh, and in fact, I was lucky enough to go see her in London uh, oh, wow. in the mid eighties yeah, right. when she was on her tour towards the end of her life. She yeah, yeah she was she was a remarkable um, artist. Now. Recording with the Velvet Underground must have been probably her, one of her most well-known phases in her career, but she recorded a lot more than that, didn't she? Yes, yeah. So um, I, I knew the Velvet Underground, and, and once I discovered her 
solo album. It was sort of this two and put two and two together and realised that she was sort of a voice on some of the songs because mm-hmm. um, I hadn't sort of made the, the connection. Um, but the albums she produced, I think, three or four solo albums once she left the Velvet Underground. But she worked quite closely with John Cale, who was a member of the Velvet Underground, yep. uh, and he produced. Um, a lot of the albums and he played viola and a lot of the the tracks has viola on it Mm -hmm. Um, and then she also worked a little bit with Brian Eno so she was very much caught up in that generation of music making and I think sort of for me the most interesting thing especially as you know the way that she speaks or spoke about her Velvet Underground experience it's sort of the the um disappointment that she had but also rolled into that I think and it's something that Danielle and I are very keen on focusing on in the show is the experience of a woman of her generation creating the music that she wanted to create Mm -hmm. and I think that is like such a um, you know if she was Bryony you know if she was Lou Reed if she was one of these men how her career trajectory might have been different and how her um, understanding now um, might be different. So that's something that I find really fascinating and um, quite sort of sad about her. But then also I think in that respect she was a trailblazer for women um, did she, of more sorry, alternative music. Sorry, uh, Evan, did she write the music on her albums? She did, yeah. She she wrote the, the songs and then she would work with John Cale on um, sort of extending them beyond just uh, either guitar or she also played harmonium. Like Harmonium. Yeah, she did. Thing. She played it when I saw her in London. So she'd had a yeah. music. She'd had a music. Um, uh, she'd learned music in Germany, had she? Before. She no. Started? Do you know what she? She actually had an extraordinary trajectory because she was discovered by a photographer first of all as a model, and uh, he. <laughs> that was that was kind of the the first exchange in in her in her her trajectory and then she walked a path with that crossed with the most incredible uh, mixture of very influential artists and one of them of yep. course was Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones yep. and then of course there was the um uh John Cale and the Velvet Underground um she also was a she was a performer as well and she was in she, John Paul Belmondo's films she was yep. also of course in Andy Warhol's films she was just she, you know Gosh, it must have been an exciting time to be in Europe. Is my yeah. what, what I, I must have think uh, think about all of that. But um, so she's had these rather incredible mentors, I think, and I, I think that she has she has grown into music. I think it is mm. her mentors yeah. that have taught her. Okay. Yeah, 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 definitely. And I think that sort of um, in a way you, you you kind of hear that a bit in the music. It's very like I said, it's unlike anything else you hear, and and I think that's part of it is that she goes into it in an almost a bit of a naive way. She wants to just create sounds and tell stories and she's not necessarily caught up perhaps in what some of the, her colleagues of her generation were in terms of let's change the face of music, let's change how people listen to rock music and that sort of thing and the energy that that has. She was, I think, more interested in an inner, uh, an inner creativity, which I think um, means that her sound world to this day is really diverse and really individual. So, Evan, uh, I can see you're a part of the um, contemporary classical music. Was she? Yeah. Do you think she was influenced by people like Stockhausen? I think so. I actually think more, you know, definitely I, I, as, a, as a German person, mm. I think, you know, the, 
speaking generally a lot they have a you know a great understanding of the broader cultural um activity in mm. germany in terms of music and so I, i'm sure she would have known about some of the contemporary classical music activities right. but i actually think a lot about the way that she crafts songs the kind of cryptic nature of some of the texts and also the, her use of a lot of analogy in her, her text it reminds me a lot actually of schubert and schumann mm. and it, it comes i think very much from that german leader tradition of um There's an element of fairy tale. There's an element of melancholy uh, and storytelling. And, mm. and I think, I, for me, that was sort of part of the reason of taking these songs and writing them, uh, extending them for traditional orchestral instruments, is that it just they just, to me, fit so much in that tradition um, of, of Schumann and Schubert. So that's kind of how I interpret some of her songs. Okay, Not necessarily so, from a rock perspective, but right. more just from a traditional German music making perspective. Yeah, I guess. Yes, that's more interesting in, in, in a way. Now, I haven't seen her perform. Tell us a little bit about Danielle, who's playing Nico in this production. Yeah, so Danielle, um, Danielle's work, she's focused a lot on women within a cabaret context. She's done, done a show about Bertha Kitt, um, and she, she did a show called Everybody Wants a Piece of Malta, which was about her, uh, her experience as a Maltese. Uh, person, her uh, multi-lineage person, because Danielle is she's a stunningly gorgeous person, first of all, both uh, in it, inside and out. And part of her her allure and her look is she often gets um, spoken to as if like, oh, you're so exotic. And she always she was really interested in this concept of what makes a person appear exotic. And so everyone wants a piece of Malta explored that. Um, Danielle on stage is charming she's fiery um and she she prides herself a lot on being someone who's very approachable and can easily draw you in and then you know halfway through her shows she will sort of hit you between the eyes with some really um, big ideas and big thinking so um, we've been friends for, for many years and we've always wanted to work on something but the opportunity to kind of bring the sort of cabaret world and the contemporary class of the musical world is not necessarily one that's um, easy to do all the time because there's obviously very different musical tropes that you have to sort of consider. Um, so for this music where we've kind of got Nico's songs that are very much of one world, we've got the ensemble, which is very much another, and then Danielle that gives it a further space. So we're trying to bring those sort of three elements together within a kind of theatrical storytelling uh, environment. So, um, yeah, I'm so excited to sort of see how she's going to breathe life into these songs because we approached it not so much as a, as a um, biopic, but more as a tribute to Nico and to tell her story. So she's not necessarily going to be trying to imitate her. No, okay. And, and clearly the instrumentation will be uh, quite different as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, there's sort of hints, like we've used the accordion in Forest Collective and um, William Elm is a fantastic accordion player and he comes very much from a, a path that is to do with um, making music within bands and like a, a post-minimalism um, sort of Brian Eno-esque uh, pathway. So he's very much a really great resource in this show. And he plays the accordion, which has a very similar sound world to, to the harmonium that she plays. So there's certainly sort of um, references to her music making. But yeah, there's the rest of the ensemble, you have flute, clarinet, violin, you know, the traditional uh, classical music group. So it's also about taking her music into a new context. And again, I feel 
going back to what I was saying before about the Schubert Schumann thing, there's also an element I feel in her music which sort of cries out for multiple colours. And John Cale in his production of her music, he'd use the viola, say he would re- record multiple lines on the viola so that it sounds like a, a string quartet is playing music. And so mm-hmm. I, I think that this, uh, I would hope to think that this version of her music is uh, something that she would find really um, stimulating and uh, rewarding because uh, it lends itself to these instruments very well, very easily. It sounds like an amazing collaboration. So for our listeners, Nico, Songs They Never Play on the Radio is going to be on at the Fringe Hub, which is the Lithuanian club, uh, on the 14th, 15th and 16th of September. It's a collaboration between um, Forest Collective and Daniel Ashak and the Fringe, obviously. And there's, you can go for tickets on the Fringe website or I will put up a link on our Facebook page. It's been great talking to you today. Thank you very much, Evan Lawson, for your time. Oh, thank you. Thanks for, thanks for chatting. Hopefully see you at the show. Fabulous. You Bye. Bye-bye. Beautiful. Bye. So I thought I might play a little bit of uh, the actual Nico herself. Yeah, did you, were you a Nico fan? Did you like Nico? Uh, I liked Velvet Underground. Uh, she was cool. Yeah, she sure was. How did she die? Dug over uh, was it? No, it was an awful story, actually. Oh, bike. She got she hit was, by a bike. On a... She fell off her bike, and I In, think um, they assumed that she had had heat stroke, and they didn't, the medical authorities didn't really investigate too much. They just sort of let, wait, let her, well, I mean, I think she went to hospital, but they didn't realise she'd had an, um, she'd really hit her head, and she had a hemorrhage. This was in Ibiza, no? Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, so in 1984, Edward Wilson, a yes. Pulitzer Prize-winning biologist at Harvard, published his theory of biophilia. Oh, yes, biophilia. What is biophilia? Humans, he argued subconsciously, seek connections with the rest of life and nature because they create positive responses and feelings. So it's just... Like when when you see a baby Labrador, yeah. for example, you it gives you a feeling of um, love and connection. Most certainly, sort. it does. Yeah. And so, or even a baby rat, yeah, maybe um, perhaps not so much baby spiders. No, mm-hmm. no. How about maggots? Oh, look, I'm not fond of the maggots. You're not fond of them. No, definitely not fond of the maggots. <laughs> Wouldn't give you a biophilic feeling. No, I think that no. would probably more likely make my skin crawl. Good. All right. Well, this is leading to the bell miner, that um, the bell bird, yeah. a bird I've always found biophilically lovely because I love the sound. It's a oh yes, it's that, ding that, ding dinging. Yes. Um, but in fact, they're destroying our trees. Oh, now I have heard this. Yes. Yeah. What are they doing again? Well, you're just about to find out. Well, if I can find, yeah, here we go. So the bell miner, Manorina mellifrarius, sorry, my Latin's terrible, commonly known as the bellbird, is a colonial honey eater endemic to southeast Australia. They live in colonies of up to 200 birds, which mm-hmm. consist of coteries or clans of generally related male birds and their offspring. As a colony, bell miners are aggressive and defend their territory. So when you're hearing all these ding-dinging going on, yeah. they're creating a sound barrier to all other birds, except for one bird, and that's the noisy miner, because they're making so much bloody noise they can't hear the bell miner carrying on either. But this Seriously? Is, this is what they're creating. It's a, if, you, if you listen to it's it It's a wall of sound. It's a wall of sound that they're creating in their, in their territory to stop all, most other birds, but only in the middle section of the trees. The, the little fairy wrens and birds down the bottom, they don't oh, care. Oh, they're okay. About, but it's mostly for the ones in the middle section. 
magpies. So hunt. their call is designed to be really annoying to all other birds. That's it. It Goodness did. me, yeah, really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, noisy miners do pretty much the same thing. And they're very similar to the noisy miner in that they'll gang up on other birds. You'll get up to 12 or 13 more um, bell miners on any magpie or kookaburra who... who ah, do you know I get, didn't actually realise that they were a miner either? Do they look like a miner bird that well, I would recognise? They, they? They, they, it's actually a, um, a, it's a misnomer. They're, they're a honey eater. Right. So they're they're like the the bell mine the um, noisy miner, but they are they are a minor bird. Oh, apparently. really? So anyway, what, the amazing thing about them is the, the interesting thing is that they specialise in consuming insects known as psyllids. Yes. Who are a bug that feeds on eucalyptus sap, and what they do is they they farm these psyllids by eating only the young nymphs, which are called sweet lerps. And this is these these bugs are all over the the gums, but the the bell miner will farm them by, so that they have a constant source of food. So they don't eat everything; they just oh. eat the younger ones, so that the other ones, the, the older ones, keep can keep producing. Replicating. But the problem is that they, by stopping all other birds from coming into their territory and by and by farming these psyllids, it, it creates it weakens the, the the gum so that they end up killing the tree, which. You know, it seems like I mean, when you look at a eucalypt, it, their, their life is actually, some of them, their life is quite short. But it, it just amazes me that they can have this this um, this function, which is to farm, yes. which is quite amazing for a bird. Well, maybe it's not that amazing, but also that the farming actually ends up killing off the, what, they're, oh, what they're trying to do. Sounds a bit like what humans do. Well, that's exactly what I said. That, you know, we're doing the same thing and then we just move on. Yes, yes. So... Um, they're not as nice as they sound, those little bellbirds. Well, this is it. This is one. You know, it's a biophilic um, sensation they had, which is in fact, um, you know, it's a, it's not it's not good at all. They're no. those bloody miners. But listen, a, a, a listener has commented on my mic control. Oh, which really? Which is uh, apparently not so good. But I'm trying. I'm really trying. But we have these microphones, as you know, which um, you have to stare at and get quite close to. Yes. And thinking of all the other people who have been quite close to these microphones. Makes my, you want to sit back a bit My immune system balks a bit. <laughs> <laughs> we have these great big, huge mics that we've got to stick our faces really, really closely right. to in the studio. And this is why I wanted Mark one, is not good at it. I'm not good at it. And I wanted one of these ridiculous, one of those ridiculous things that Madonna has. Oh yes, which is those you know they they so you can move around when you get animated. Yes, and here we go. Now I'm going to be vulgar, which is not something I like. I like don't mind being outrageous, but vulgar I'm not so happy about. But anyway, I think this Madonna is a perfect example of a pair of tits and naked ambition getting you places. What do you really? You so you don't like her music? Did she make music? Yes, yeah, she did. Make so, music. Does anybody listen to Madonna now? Ah, uh, probably. I don't know, you know actually. That That's interesting. Well, I have no idea. She was daughter. so big in the eighties. Oh well, certainly my daughter wouldn't listen to no, her now. No, exactly. No, but this is it. This is. But like... I, what about the kids that listened to her and loved her in the eighties? I bet you they'd still listen. Well, to look, her. I was there in the eighties, and I, oh, I couldn't stand her music. But you know, I was a bit of a classical snob already in yep. those days. But I, I you, know, but you know, they can, you can study her music at university. Also, you can study Madonna at university. There's You're people do their me. theses on Madonna which is just insane. Anyway, I do admire her success. There's no question that she's been incredibly successful, and apparently she's a bit of a tough girl, but that's about it. Now, there's one woman I do respect very much so in, in the, those times, was Patti Smith, who's 
humility and, and distance and absence is something that I think is just uh, uh, wonderful to, to see and to hear. So I think we're going to finish off with... You'd like me to play a bit of um, Paddy Smith, would I you? I would love you to play some Paddy right, Smith. All right, then.